loving Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus as your servant king. Help us to fix our eyes on him this evening. Encourage, encourage and comfort us where we are weak. Humble us where we are proud. And help us to love the Lord Jesus all the more deeply we pray. In his name we pray all of these things. Amen. Please take your seats. Towards the end of the 20th century, the British monarchy was faced with many a challenge. Scandals, finances, family breakdown, they had it all. But one of their greatest challenges was relevancy and relatability. How could this monarchy stay in touch with a country that increasingly saw them as aloof and unknowable? One of the major factors why Princess Diana was so popular amongst the public in the 80s and 90s was because she was seen as one of the people at not lauding her position of power over others, not unknowable and aloof, but using her position of power to serve and engage in charitable work. Uh, we can still see the impact of her legacy on the monarchy today. But whether it's a monarch, a politician, our line manager at work, whether it's a leader we were able to vote in or one we were given, we all long for a humble servant leader who has our best interests at heart. And that's a strange thing to desire, isn't it? Traditionally, at least, a ruler's job is to rule. Uh, their subject's job is to serve. And yet inbuilt into each one of us is this desire for a servant leader. We long for it. We're, we're restless until we find them because it's a desire that stems from being created to know our creator. It's a desire that finds its satisfaction in the Lord Jesus. Because the scandalous thing is that in the Lord Jesus, a servant leader is exactly what we find. We find the servant king. We find a king who came to serve and not be served. We find the king who gave his all for us. Over the rest of April, in both our morning and evening services, we're going to be spending some time in this short series, The King Who Gave His All for Us. Well, we'll be thinking about how the God that we follow is the King who gave his all for us. And we're going to be also thinking about what our response should be to this King. Ru began our series this morning in Isaiah 53, where he showed us that in the Lord Jesus we have a weak servant king who gloriously died in our place and that in him we find a king that we can truly marvel at and worship. If you don't usually come to the morning services here at Cornerstone uh, and you're able to, then please do think about coming for the next two weeks in the morning as well as the evening. 
But if you aren't able to, or, or you weren't able to be here this morning, you can cut, catch up with all of the sermons uh, online. This evening, we're going to be carrying on lots of the thinking that began this morning as we come to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this series, in many ways, is just an excuse to preach some of the most wonderful passages in the Bible. But as we come to Philippians 2 this evening, we're going to come from a slightly different angle to this morning as we particularly think about the mindset of Christ, our servant king, and what his mindset means for us as a church family here at Cornerstone. If you've got a Bible with you, please keep it open at Philippians chapter 2, where we're going to begin from verse 1. And we've got three points tonight. Our first point is the call. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church he'd helped to plant in Philippi, made up of a real mix of people from different walks of life who had all become Christians. You can read more about the origins of this church in Acts chapter 16. But during his time there, Paul had seen a rich businesswoman, a young slave girl, and a retired Roman soldier turned jailer all put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And there was evidence that this church had begun really well. They clearly loved Jesus. They'd stood firm in the face of opposition. And they'd even generously partnered financially in the gospel work that Paul was doing elsewhere. We can see that at the end of chapter 4. But where the Philippians really struggled was in regard to a lack of unity in the church. They'd been struggling with bickering infighting, maybe struggling to reconcile their differences because they were so different to one another. And so you can read throughout this letter, Paul appealing to them to be united, asking them to stop arguing, pleading with them to put their disputes to rest. And we can see the same appeal for unity at the beginning of our passage. Look down with me at verses one and two. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. I love how verse one begins. How's it been since you started following Jesus? Paul's asking. How's it been since you were united to Christ? Any encouragement? Any comfort? Any tenderness and compassion? Has it been good to have his spirit live within you? Well, if you're united with Christ, please be united with one another. It will do my soul the world of good. It will make my joy complete to see you getting along, Paul says. I notice how in verse 2, Paul uses several expressions to make the same point about unity. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He's, he's desperate for the Philippians to live out the unity that they have in the gospel, the unity that they have in Christ. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul shows them how they can maintain this unity. Look with me there, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And not looking to your own interests, but each of you 
to the interests of the others. I'm going to let you into a bit of a secret, a struggle that churches in England across the country have a struggle with every single week. It's something that no amount of planning or prayer ever seems to impact. How do we get people to sit on the front row? I was worried, but tonight, what I wrote is true tonight as well. Risky. At second row back, no problem. But how do we fill the auditorium from the front? At Spencer and our interns, they do a great job of trying to usher people to the front. Some people do make a point of sitting there from time to time, but every week, it's a struggle. I've even resorted to telling our students that you get a 4D VIP experience if you sit on the front row, but even that hasn't worked. But can you imagine how different our churches would be if we treated everyone, no matter who they were, like a VIP, as soon as they walked through those doors. How welcoming and warm the Philippians church family would have felt if they strove to put verses 3 and 4 into practice. Whether you came in with a high social standing in society or you were the lowest of the low. Whether you were loaded or poor. Whether your past was squeaky clean or full of shame, when you came together as a church family, each person was treated as a very important person. Because each person was choosing to humbly value others as more important than themselves. It's when this isn't lived out that church life can be so painful. But if the Philippians were to live this out, it would be incredible. If people in the church had a need, it would be met. If someone in the church was struggling, they would be supported. As each person in the church was looking outwardly to the interests of those around them, they could trust that their own interests wouldn't be neglected because the others in the congregation, in the church family, would be doing the same for them. Each person in the church could flourish and be supported without the need to be self-absorbed or selfish, and always looking within. How attractive would that kind of community look to those outside? As they saw a group of very different people radically committed to loving and serving the needs of one another, instead of living for themselves on a Sunday, and actually throughout the week, because church family shouldn't be something that we just do on a Sunday. That unity in diversity, maintained through humility and service of one another, it would at the very least generate a bit of curiosity to those watching on, because it is what people crave. But let's be honest, this this is a big call Paul's placed on the Philippians. Uh, It's not easy to humbly value those you really love and care about above yourself, and look to their needs and interests, So how are the Philippians going to do this when someone that really irritates them walks through the door? Are they just to summon up some more willpower, try really hard not to fall out? When they're tired, weary, uh, they feel like they're the only one pulling their weight in the church. Are they just to grit their teeth and remember it's the right thing to do and carry on serving whilst growing increasingly bitter? 
gospel provides a better solution in the next part of our passage. Point two, the cross. Paul writes in verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. A mindset uh, refers to your outlook, uh, the way that you look and understand the world, yourself, those around you. Uh, and we do live in a society that loves to talk about mindsets. Uh, I used to be a teacher, and I uh, remember one year seven pupil who had just joined the school educating me uh, about the importance of having a growth mindset rather than a static or fixed mindset. But instead of seeing failure as the limit of my abilities, I should see failure as an opportunity for growth. That instead of seeing challenges as mountains blocking my path, I should see them as opportunities to overcome. It was motivating. Lots of it was very useful. It was so motivating, in fact, that I felt inspired to give them a detention for not doing their work. But what Paul is saying is that if we want to be a church who lives out this call to unity in our diversity, at the call that he makes in verse one to four. If we want to be a church family that stands out for our unity and our humble love for one another, we need to have the same mindset as Christ. The same mindset as the king who gave his all for us. What was his mindset? What is his mindset? Look with me at verses five to eight. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you want to see a humble and loving mindset, look to Christ. Who else modeled humility and love better than Christ? Who else in humility valued others above themselves better than the Lord Jesus? If you want unity with one another, then in your relationships have this same cross-shaped mindset as Jesus, Paul says, he who, being in very nature God, who is the Son of God, who is equal to the Father, who is the only one worthy of praise, but who used all that power, all of his position to serve humbly. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held onto, or something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Christ left the glory, the majesty of heaven. He took on human flesh. He came to earth and he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many dying on the cross. If you want to be a church of unity, of humble love, then it is this cross-shaped mindset of the king who gave his all for us that we need, Paul says. But there's a danger here. 
Uh, we could read verse 5 either as a bit of a beat-up uh, or as some motivational pep talk. Uh, we could read verse 5 as, come on, be united, be humble, remember how Jesus acted. That's how you're to treat those around you. Just try harder. You can do it. Or we could read it as, why can't you be more like Jesus? Or why can't you just stop being rubbish, falling out, bickering? Why can't you just start having his mindset? If we read verse 5 in either of those ways, the danger is that it's, it's not liberating. It's crushing. And I don't think Paul's intention is to crush the Philippians. We can see that just from the tone of our passage. The way the ESV translates verse 5 maybe helps us here. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have Christ's mindset, which is already yours if you're in Christ. Paul's not buying into some hollow motivational talk. He's not calling on the Philippians to just try and work harder. No, he's calling them to live out the mindset that they've already been given gifted in the gospel of Christ. He's not placing another burden on our shoulders or theirs this evening. Instead, he's calling us to joyfully live out who we are in Christ, who Christ has made us to be in the gospel, and to see ourselves, others, the world around us, through the eyes of the king who gave us his all. Paul is saying, if the one who is in very nature God, who is equal to God, has humbly counted you and I as more valuable than himself by laying down his life for us at the cross, if we are those who have been loved and served and treated in this way by him, that has to affect us. It has to change us. We can't come to the foot of the cross, see Christ dying in our place because he counted us as more valuable than himself and come away unchanged. John Stott writes this about the cross. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary, it is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Uh, as you and I look to Christ, at the cross of Christ this evening, uh, whether for the first time or for the thousandth, uh, as we see his death in our place, it will humble us. Uh, and it will continue to humble us if we'll let it. Because it will remind us that our sin was so bad so terrible that the only solution for it was the death of God's one and only son. But it will also remind us that God loves us so much, that we are so precious to him, that he was willing to send his one and only son to die in our place so that we might know him as father 
and as friend. And as we are reminded of the love that Christ showed us, as we are reminded of the mindset the king has given us, the mindset that took him to the cross, it helps us to be those who take up his cross-shaped mindset so we might love those around us. I wonder, what might it look like for you to take on the mindset of Christ, the mindset that he has given you, and how might it help you to value others above yourself this week? Maybe it starts at home, as you strive to humbly put the needs of those you live with before your own, even when you're tired or moody. Maybe it looks like taking this mindset into your workplace, serving those around you humbly, whether you're at the very bottom of the food chain or whether you're the CEO. But the application that's maybe most in line with our passage is how are we going to let this cross-shaped mindset that Christ has loved us with and given to us, how are we going to let that impact how we love and serve those in our church family here at Cornerstone? How will we let this mindset fuel the unity and love of verse 1 and 2 that we've been called to? Could it look like deliberately trying to check in with someone, going out of your way to serve someone in the church, maybe in your connect group this week? Not in a big flashy way, but in a humble, ordinary way. Or could it look like joining a serving team here at Cornerstone, counting others as more valuable than yourself as you serve them by clicking through some words on a PowerPoint as we sing, arriving a little bit early so you could welcome people as they come in or set up for tea and coffee? How will you let this cross-shaped mindset that Christ has given you impact you on a Sunday and throughout the week? But actually, as I've been writing this, I'm really conscious that for many in the room, serving others is not a major issue. Actually, perhaps for many of us in this room, taking on a cross-shaped mindset this week, maybe it looks like being willing to let others serve you. To let yourself be counted as weak, like our saviour chose to embrace weakness. Perhaps your tendency is to go it alone as a bit of a lone ranger. Or or you like to be seen as the one who is strong, uh, who has it all together, and, and others who need support come to you. Maybe the best way for you to put our passage into practice this week looks like remembering that the Lord Jesus came to serve you and not be served. Or to willingly embrace your weakness this week as Christ did, as you humbly ask for help or prayer or make yourself a bit more vulnerable than you're comfortable with this week. Finally, point three, the crown. Christ's humble, servant-hearted mindset that took him to the cross is the mindset that we're called to adopt and live out as a church family Uh, if we want to be those who maintain our unity uh, and if we want to be effective at holding out the good news of the gospel to those around us but we need to remember we have to remember 
that what follows the cross, what comes because of the cross, is the crown. Look down with me at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We hate it when leaders just look out for their own interests. Uh, When they look out uh, and use their position of power for selfish gain, to cover up scandal or corruption, or when they don't follow through on what was promised, or when they lack integrity. There's just something within each of us that, that knows that's not what leaders should be like. That's not how it should be. But the glorious thing is that with Christ, we never need to worry about those things. Christ is the leader that we can always trust and rely on. The leader who will never need to make reforms to be relevant or relatable because he is the perfect leader. It is Christ's humble, obedient, servant-hearted mindset that took him to the cross. His willingness to humble himself to death, even death on a cross, that is the very reason that the Father has exalted him to the highest place. His willingness to lay down his all for us in service is the reason that he is qualified to take up the crown. His choice to have his name despised as he was mocked and killed on the cross is the very reason that his name is the name that is above every other name. When I was at school, I took GCSE economics because I wanted to know how to make a lot of money from investing in stocks and shares. That was the only reason I took it. Sadly, I was more preoccupied with selling chocolate and fizzy drinks in the classroom for a profit uh, rather than learning. And so there was little that I took away and I barely scraped a passing grade. But the one thing that I do remember uh, was something called the J-curve. The J-curve is a trend line on a graph that shows an initial loss followed, uh, an initial loss on an investment immediately followed by a dramatic gain. It's called a J-curve because when you look at it on a chart, the pattern that is made kind of looks like a capital J. Paulie Miller took this concept and wrote a book called The J-Curve are arguing that Jesus' trajectory follows the J-curve. All the more memorable because his name begins with a capital J. As we've seen in our passage, he shows that Jesus suffered and died on the cross, but that he then rose and is exalted today. That the cross came before the crown. And it is this same trajectory that you and I are called to follow today. We are called to take on the cross-shaped mindset of our king now, humbly serving those around us with the love of Christ, valuing others above ourselves in order to maintain unity, making what looks like a downward, costly, losing investment now, knowing that, From the outside, 
that trend line might look ridiculous now. But knowing that our sufferings are only temporary and that if we are in Christ, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus, then that trajectory is guaranteed to make an unbelievable return. That what looks like a downward trajectory is guaranteed to go up. Because all those who have put their trust in Christ have a certain share in the glory that is to come. It is knowing this J-curve of Philippians 2 that helps us to go into this week, able to say that if we have Jesus, if we have this king who gave his all for us, then we have all we need. And we are free to give our all for him. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve. Thank you that he served us in his life, living the life that we could never live. Thank you that he served us in his death, dying in our place for our sin. And thank you that because you rose him from the grave, he serves us still interceding for us, praying for us, and working in us by his spirit to make us more like him. Help us to take on his cross-shaped mindset into this week, we pray, knowing that the crown is to come. Because Jesus has that crown already. We pray these things in his name. Amen.